If you don't have your Bibles open, open them up if you would, please, to Luke chapter 2. And we are in a series called The Christmas Adventures. And I want you to notice the word Advent in adventure is italicized. And I want to explain why we're doing that. In fact, what we're doing is we're looking at four times in Scripture that angels come to earth to specific people to prepare them for the birth of Jesus Christ. And you want to notice that word Advent. It's italicized. It's pretty easy to see it. It means, here's what the word Advent means. It means the arrival of a notable person or event. So what I realize is that Advent forms the root for the word adventure. So what does adventure mean? It means simply in your dictionaries, something that is about to happen. And so the Christian Advent, this is the season that churches all over the world are celebrating. They begin, it begins four weeks before Christmas. It's the Advent season. The Christmas Advent, it's a preparation for the church to remember that God came in the form of a baby. His name, Jesus, and he came to save the world. And it's an opportunity for all of us, for everybody that's celebrating Christmas, to remember again that the Bible speaks of a second advent. Now listen, this is the key part of this. And this is why I keep introducing this at each of these sermons in this series. Now you ready? I'm going to slow it down for a moment. Make sure that you're all hearing this because this forms really the purpose for these sermons. There is a second advent. What does advent mean? It means the arrival of a notable person or event. And that notable person is Jesus. The event is he's coming again and he's coming for his church. Now listen, I don't know how much you know about end times theology. Theology is just ology, the study, theo, God. It's the study of God. I don't know how much you know about that, but let me just say this. The Bible is utterly clear that God is not going to abandon us. He never has. He is coming again. Jesus will return. There will be a second advent. We are in the advent season. He is coming soon. This is how he closes the, in, the entire Bible in Revelation. He is coming soon. We believe in the evangelical free church denomination. That's Cornerstone's denomination. That his return is imminent. That means it could happen at any time. It could happen tonight. It could happen in a hundred years. It could happen in a thousand years. But it could happen at any point. That's what we believe in the E-Free. So God is coming again in the form of Jesus for his church. We are in the second advent and we have a job. And that job, that adventure, there it is again. That adventure that every Christian has is to prepare the people around you for his return. Your adventure is going to look different than my adventure. But we all, every Christian, has an adventure. And what we're seeing in these sermons is that our adventures have an incredible amount of parallels to the adventures of Zechariah, Mary, Joseph, and today the shepherds. So let's look closely at that fourth one. A fourth and final time that an angel appears to proclaim the coming of Jesus. He's going to come to a group of shepherds 
but we need to get our bearings and the word of god so here we go you ready if you do not yet have the word of god open you're going to need that open you're going to need to see specifically what god's word is saying luke chapter 2 is the third book of the new testament and i'm going to show you four ways that we can learn from the adventure of the shepherds here's the first you ready God's adventures, the mission that he gives to each of us, your, yours is going to look different than mine, God's adventures reflect his perfect control. Now, I need to tell you this. I want to tell you two things. The first is this. You're going to notice if you've been to all four of these Christmas adventure series sermons, that there's a lot of overlap, there's a lot of redundancy, there's a lot of parallels that each of these have. Well, that's not by mistake. All of these adventures that you and I are going to live, that the Bible, the biblical saints lived, there were fundamentally the same truths that they needed to know, that we needed to know. And when life gets very difficult when you're serving God, the very foundational understanding that's going to bring you peace is to remember that God is always perfectly in control and that leads you to the second one there's going to be times when you don't understand what's happening there's going to be times that god's adventure for you god's mission for you god's story for you that you're living out that you're unfolding is going to have difficulty suffering you're going to lose jobs occasionally because you will not bend to the world's means you're going to hold fast to your integrity you're going to get cancer diagnoses. You're going to get medical problems. You're going to have times where they're, they're, your money is going to run out and you're losing your job and your, your company's downsizing and you're going to be thinking to yourself, wait a minute, God, you called me to this. I know you did. What is happening to me? Well, number one, you've got to remember this. So listen, this is one you've got to get down in your mind and in your soul. You've got to get it like an anchor for your life. God is always in perfect control. I love Jeremiah 1.12. If you have not yet marked this up in your Bible, can I encourage you to do that? Write a note and maybe do that a little bit later. Meditate on this. Here's what it says. Then the Lord said to me, this is Jeremiah speaking, I am watching over my word to perform it. God speaks to Jeremiah, says, I am watching over my word to perform it. Have you ever seen that verse before? This is the God that watches over his word because he's going to, with his power, perform it. So here we are in Luke chapter 2, and it's, as it begins to open, as Luke, the, the uh, historian doctor, he is brilliant, does a lot of research, as he opens up chapter 2, we have a worldwide Roman Empire-wide census that goes out. Now look what it's saying. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. Now, this was done every 14 years. There's, there's Egyptian records. At that time, Egypt was under Rome's control. There was Egyptian records that every 14 years, these census, a census went out. And it goes out from Caesar Augustus. By the way, that's not his birth name. Those are two titles. 
it's a combination of titles. Caesar is emperor. Augustus means holy. So here's the holy emperor, the most powerful man in the world. He sits on the throne of Rome. He's the first Caesar. Remember, Caesar means emperor. He's the first one to ever be considered a god. People looked at him as if he was a god. And he was hailed. Now listen, this is, this is important. This is key. You should put this in the margin of your Bibles. He was hailed and called, quote, the savior of the world. That was one of his titles. In fact, when he died in 14 AD, people comforted themselves, convincing themselves that since Caesar Augustus was a god and gods do not die, then he's really continuing to live. He really hasn't gone. That's how they comforted themselves when he died. His birth name, however, was Gaius Octavius. He was a grand-nephew of somebody that everybody has heard, Julius Caesar. Remember, Julius Caesar was very, very famous. Gaius Octavius, uh, grand-nephew of Julius Caesar, who defeated Antony, Cleopatra. You remember these words. He consolidated the Roman emperor, or the Roman Empire, rather. So the command for a census to be taken, you know why they did this, right? Taxation and military service. They wanted to know how much money that they could bring into the empire, and they wanted to know how big their military force was. So every time they sent a census out, it was for those two reasons, taxation and military draft. They want to calculate the wealth and the might of Rome. And a census was a massive endeavor. Rome was so big at this point, it took two years to complete. So the Jews, now listen, this is important, the Jews were exempt from Roman military service. So as you're about to see Joseph and Mary traveling to Bethlehem, he's not going there for military draft, he's going there so that they can accurately tax him. It's for the taxation records. The custom of the Jewish people at this point, and there are military records, or rather Jewish records proving this, it was to register by tribe, clan, and family. So you would think, well, why can't Joseph just register in Nazareth? Why does he have to take his very pregnant betrothed wife all the way to Nazareth? Well, because the, the legal requirements of the Jewish people were they had to go register where their clans and their households were from. And his was from a little town in, near Jerusalem called Bethlehem. It's the ancestral city for David, the king of Israel. That's where he was born. And here we go, verse 3. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now, you remember the point, and I don't know, to me this is really fascinating, but all this background information that I give you can kind of inadvertently distract you from the point. The point is that God, when he gives us an adventure, he's always in perfect control of it. Now let's watch that unfold. 
The Jewish people despised Rome. They hated living under Roman rule. They fiercely loved their land. They were fiercely committed to their freedom, but they did not have it. They were a slave state to Rome. Even though Rome gave them a lot of freedom, a lot of latitude, they did not force them, the Jewish people, to worship Roman gods. They did not force them to bend their religion they tried. It did not work very well. The Jewish people uprised against them. Thousands and thousands were killed. But they chafed, the Jewish people did, under Roman rule. Centuries earlier than this moment, they were defeated. And many of them taken to Babylon. And you remember from Psalm 137. Now, they're, listen, they're, they're taken from Jerusalem... They're taken forcibly up north, a little bit east to Babylon, 600, 600, about 550 miles. And they wrote this in Psalm 137. By the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. When we remembered Zion, when we remembered the city of God, Jerusalem, on the willows there we hung up our lyres, our instruments. For there our captors required of us songs, and our tormentors mirth, saying, Sing is one of the songs of Zion. They mocked them, but they were now enslaved to Babylon. This happened centuries before Joseph and Mary traveled to Bethlehem. So they're in their land now. God brought them back from Babylon. He's brought them back to their land, but their land is not their own, and they chafed under the rule of Rome. Listen, it was a dark time in Israel. And it's one, and by the way, can you identify with this? It's one in which they truly felt their God had abandoned them. Now, have you ever felt that way? Now, I mentioned this a little bit last week, and I, I want to prepare you. This is, this is what pastors are to do. They are to prepare their congregants for times that are surely coming. And I'm going to tell you, I won't promise this, but I can tell you I am quite sure that all of us will at some point feel that God has abandoned you. You're going to go through hard times. We live in a world of suffering, and God does not, once you become a Christian, take you out of suffering any more than he takes you out of the world. In fact, he takes you through suffering. But sometimes suffering is deep and long and dark. And it is not going to be unusual. Listen, if you're younger, you better get this in your mind now. At least consider this as a possibility. Do not be taken by surprise that you will go through a time where you wonder, God, have you abandoned me? And when you go through that time, I want at least try to remember, let it resonate in your mind. It feels like God's abandoning me, but I know he's in perfect control. There's a promise from the Old Testament. It was made 700 years before Joseph is traveling to Bethlehem. It concerns this little town. It's from Micah 5.2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old from ancient days. Now listen, this is mind-boggling. 700 years previous, there's a prophecy about this little town. 
And it's fulfilling, it's being fulfilled before our eyes in Luke chapter 2. This is control of God. So here we've got Caesar Augustus, Gaius Octavius, sitting on a throne 1,400 miles if you're taking a plane across the Mediterranean up into Rome, 1,400 miles south and a little bit east is Bethlehem, 1,400 miles away. He issues this census unwittingly causing to be put into motion the fulfilling of a prophecy down in Bethlehem. This is our amazing God. Bethlehem, a little town, six miles southwest of Jerusalem. It's high up, 2,400 feet above sea level. That's why, even though they're coming from the north up in Nazareth and Galilee, it's why they say they go up to Bethlehem, because you go up in elevation, you go up to Jerusalem, you go up to Bethlehem. It's a beautiful little town. Here's the climate of Bethlehem even to today. It hasn't changed by maybe a couple degrees. It's high 70s or mid 70s in the summer, high 50s in the winter. This is Bethlehem. It's like San Diego, California weather, according to John MacArthur. And its name means house of bread. Perfectly fitting, right, for the birthplace of the bread of heaven. And while this pretend savior, 1,400 miles away, the, the savior of the world, Gaius Octavius, Caesar Augustus, while he, decree, he declares this census, he decrees it, he unwittingly carries out the sovereign plan of God that the true savior of the world would be born in Bethlehem. It is perfect timing with Mary's imminent delivery. God is in control, Amen. Yet still, and I want to come back to this, this, listen, my heart, my heart is very aware that some of you are going to go through deep suffering. I know you will. I do a lot of counseling. It's a privilege of mine to sit in, the, in a room with people that have suffered much, much greater than me and just to sit there and try and pray and offer any kind of hope that I can. In the midst of knowing that God is in perfect control, it seems that God was anything but in control. Look at verse 6. And while they were there, the time came for Mary to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. Where is God's perfect control? And we're talking about Jesus his birth. We're talking about Mary and Joseph, this couple, having received an, a visit from Gabriel, the highest messenger angel who stood around the throne of God. I mean, this is an incredible birth, and there's not even a place for them to stay. Where God is your control. You know, inns were commonly built around the four sides of an inner court, generally two stories high. They had primitive stairs. They reached up to the lodging rooms. That's the second floor. And you brought your own blanket. You brought your own pillow. This is an inn in first century Judaism, Israel. On the ground floor, the animals were 
typically stabled and the cargo securely stored in rooms. Some inns were one story and the stables were on the outside, the lodging rooms on the interior and the stables on the outside of those interior four square walls. But an inn could also be a single guest room of a house. It could be a house that has a room that they would rent out for travelers. And in Bethlehem, it is known that the stables were often found in the abundance of the limestone caves all around the region. If you visit Bethlehem today, you're going to find, and actually you will be taken into some of these caves. And we're told that there was no place for them in the inn. And usually, now listen, you've heard this as much as I have. Usually the reason that they didn't have a place in the inn that's given at least that we hear is because there was a really mean, terrible innkeeper. Now we're not told this. The reason that's more likely was that there would have been a lot of Roman officials there conducting the registration for the taxation and the military not the military service but the taxation and they would have been taking any available rooms in that little town whatever the reason there was no place in the inn and many believed that they were forced to stay in a limestone cave where the animals were sheltered now how difficult must that have been for this young couple so i remember when denise and i were newly uh, we were maybe a, a, we were about a year and a half into our marriage. We had moved to Georgia. And we're trying to find a place to live. The Lord just made it so clear for us to move. We ended up moving. We packed everything we owned in a rider truck. We didn't have a place to live in Atlanta. We didn't have a job yet, but we just had the inexorable call of God. It was like you could not stop this call. You couldn't refuse it. We just went by faith. And we got down there, and I wish I could tell you that it was amazing, and it was amazing, but that it was amazing, and everything worked out so well, and we were comfortable, and everything taken care of to the degree that we wanted, that none of that happened. We had to struggle for years down there, three years we were there. I'm working a job cleaning out porta-potties around metro Atlanta while I'm youth pastoring. I'm delivering newspapers, 2.30 in the morning on Sundays, and then going to church, and teaching the kids. I mean, it was a very difficult period, and that was new in our marriage, and the strain and the stress. Well, here we go. Mary and Joseph, young, they're not even legally married, at least not in the marriage ceremony. They're betrothed. They're engaged. How difficult it must have been for this young couple, especially that they knew Mary's baby was the savior of God's people. Could there not even be a warm, comfortable place to give birth? Now listen, friends, there are times when it seems that God is not in control of all the parts of the adventures that he calls us to. Yet even this, yet even this not having room at the inn was part of God's plan for John would write in his gospel... Jesus was in the world, the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. He didn't even have a place to lay his head, he said later in his ministry. This rejection that Jesus experienced began even at his birth, and it continued his entire ministry. 
But that was about to change with the most unlikely of people, and it gets us to point number two. God's adventures often involved very unlikely people. Look at verse 8. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. Now, shepherding, this is really important. Shepherding was an honorable career beginning all the way back with Abel. Remember, Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Cain's was not because Abel brought of the firstborn of his flocks. It was a blood sacrifice. Shepherding was honorable all the way back to Abel. And some very famous people in the Old Testament were shepherds, including Moses, Abraham, David, Amos, many, many famous people. But all of a sudden, you read this little tiny verse in Genesis chapter 46. Genesis, the first book of the Bible. And it shows you the shepherds began to be despised. They were in Egypt. Joseph says to his brothers, don't tell them that you're shepherds. Why? For every shepherd is an abomination to the, the Egyptians. So there was something about shepherding that became an unworthy career. The attitude, by the way, was not entirely unwarranted. For they were often an untrustworthy group. They were not trusted by the general public. They, regarded, they were regarded as thieves. Their testimonies, they were not allowed into a legal Jewish court. You can never accept the testimony of a shepherd. Because they felt like it was tarnished. After the New Testament era, after the New Testament was written, they were increasingly despised by the Orthodox religious Jewish leaders to the point that only a Jew, the only Jew considered socially lower than a shepherd was a leper. They're at the bottom rung of society. They're getting closer to the bottom even when Jesus was born. So shepherding was not considered the most illustrious of careers. They came under a rabbinical ban they were labeled unclean, well, mainly because their work prevented them from observing all of the purity requirements, the religious requirements of Judaism, all those washings and the Sabbath. They couldn't, they couldn't uphold those, so they were considered perpetually unclean by the teachers of the Jews. Yet there were some who, who regarded shepherds as a very meditative class of men. It's really interesting, by the way, if you go back to Genesis, Abraham's son Isaac, when his wife-to-be, Rebecca, was being led by his father's greatest servant, it was Isaac who was out in the field meditating. He was a shepherd. He was a sheep herder. They're very meditative, typically, people. They're accustomed to silence. They contemplate. They spend months outdoors with the sheep. But you take the rejection they get from others, their tendency toward quiet communion in their hearts, and makes the reception of the birth announcement of the Savior of the world, it makes it spectacular. God chose shepherds to deliver the first birth announcement. So don't miss, by the way, look in your verse again, don't miss this singular form of flock. Does it say flocks? A lot of people misread that. It's singular flock. 
So these were hired men with a shepherd likely or several shepherds over one flock. So they were with each other watching over this flock. And by the way, I believe it points to the flock, the church, that Jesus, the good shepherd, will watch over as well. A group of them were taking turns, keeping the watch. That's what it means. It doesn't mean that all of them were on watch. They were taking turns, keeping their watch, when a life-changing event occurs. Verse 9, And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. Now put yourself in the life of a shepherd for a moment. It has not been since Daniel from the Old Testament that an angel, that there is any biblical record of an angel appearing to humanity. Not until he came, Gabriel did, to Zechariah, Mary, and then an angel came to Joseph. But before that, it had been since Daniel, almost 485 years And at this point, it's one angel. But the glory of the Lord, this is really important, the glory of the Lord shone around them. The them, it's one angel, the them is the angel and the shepherds. They're enveloped in the glory of the Lord. This is the favor of God in tangible form. And the shepherds were filled with great fear. Now I want you to think for a moment, when's the last time that you were terrified out of your mind. For some of us, it might have been a long time, maybe recently for others. Think of that for a moment. When's the last time that you were just scared out of your wits? It's not a pleasant memory, I'm sure. They were so afraid. Look at your text. They were so afraid, verse 9, that the angel immediately next puts them at ease by telling them, fear not. So he's telling them the very first words, don't be afraid. He has to do this because they are scared, witless, and who wouldn't be? And then the angel immediately tells them why they should have no fear, because the angel came to announce a royal birth. Verse 10, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news. I'm not here to kill you. Not here to destroy you, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Now this is really important to know because in, the, in that day, royal birth announcements were always made to the elite class first and then the bottom rungs of society last. God's economy flips that. God goes to those who are at the bottom, shepherds. That's who he makes the royal birth announcement to. And isn't it wonderful that the first people that he tells of the birth of Jesus are shepherds? Now, I cannot emphasize enough what I'm about to tell you. In fact, I would say there's three things that you're going to remember from this entire message. This is one of them I want you to remember. God chooses consistently through the entire Bible. God chooses the bottom rungs of society to do his greatest work. He simply doesn't need the elite 
to accomplish his great work. In fact, he gets glory and credit when it's those who are weak and foolish. And the work that he is about centers on good news. And that's the third point. God's adventures center on the good news of the gospel. Now, one critic of the modern news, and I think you're going you're gonna to resonate with this. I know I do. One critic says this of modern news. He wrote, the evening news is where they begin with good evening and then tell you why it isn't. Isn't that true? Don't you ever watch the news and come away discouraged? Don't you ever watch the news and then turn it off going, I can't take any more of this bad news. The world thrives on it. Well, there's not a lot in the world that is good, not according to or not in comparison to God's good. But the angel's good news is truly good news. And it is for all the people. And I'm quoting, for all the people, even shepherds who were near the bottom of Jewish society. It's very interesting to know that these were likely, however, not shepherds of ordinary common sheep. Rabbinical law, that's the laws of the, that the rabbis would make, the leaders of the the Jewish people. Rabbinical law required, now listen, this, this is, this is going to help you understand a little bit more, I think, what these shepherds were likely doing. Rabbinical law required sheep to be kept in the wilderness. And any sheep found between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, this was a law in that day, any sheep found between Jerusalem and Bethlehem, Bethlehem, six miles away, were subject to being used for temple sacrifices. So flocks for these sacrifices were kept all around Jerusalem. They're kept all around Bethlehem. So very likely, the flock that these shepherds were watching were sheep destined for sacrifice. And these shepherds were charged. Listen, their job was utterly critical because these sheep could not be sacrificed if they were ever caught in brambles and thickets and got a burr or a lesion in their skin. They could not be sacrificed if they had any noseworm larvas that come into them. They would, be, they would be full of spots and they would be full of blemishes. These had to be sheep without spot, sheep without blemish. They had to be watched over constantly. These were sheep destined for sacrifice. And they needed to be undefiled. And remember point three. Now look at your title again. Point three. God's adventures always center on the good news. Let me get you to the good news. Hebrews 9.22. God gives us a reason in the Bible why he instituted the sacrificial system. Have you ever wondered why? Why? Why do all of these sheep and bulls and pigeons and turtle doves, why do they need to be slaughtered and their blood sprinkled on the altar and their carcasses put on the, on the flames? I mean, why was all this necessary? Hebrews 9, 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now let's get down in this a little bit. You ready? Now let's, let's learn this. This is critical. This is crucial that every Christian understands the gospel. Sin brings death. You're with me. I know you got that. That's, that's Genesis all the way in chapters 1, 2, and then we see it happen in verse chapter 3, rather. So sin brings death. 
and the sacrifice of an animal, listen, this is it, ready? It was allowed by God to be a substitute for the sinner. This is mercy. The animal, God decided, could be put to death in substitution form for the sinner so that the sinner could live. It was a constant reminder that a sinner can live, but only at the expense of another. That's how heinous and tragic sin is. The animal's death could only cover sin. It couldn't take it away. There was no power in the blood of an animal, no matter how defiled it was, to take sin out of the soul of a sinner. It could only cover it. And the very next time you sin, you're going to be in need of another animal sacrifice. This is why they were performed morning, afternoon, or morning and evening in special occasions throughout the year. They constantly, there was smoke, it was said of Jerusalem that smoke from the altar burned continually. It was a reminder, even seeing the smoke, smelling it. Sin is heinous. Sin is contagious. Sin cannot be taken away by these lambs. It can only be taken away by somebody else. It's a spotless lamb of God. The perfect substitute for us. The perfect sacrifice would be Jesus himself. He's the Lamb of God. And he would remove sin from the soul of a believing sinner. This flock of sheep in Luke chapter 2 verse 8, destined for sacrifice, pointed to the greatest substitute, Christ the Lord. That's the titles that he's given by the angel. Now, by the way, Christ is not the last name for Jesus. It's a title, as is the word Lord. It's the New Testament kurios of the Old Testament, Yahweh. So we've got Christ, the Lord. It's a title for the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the ruler over all creation, faithful to his word, the redeemer. He's the baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, verse 12. And after declaring this good news, that there is a perfect substitute that, can, that is for you bringing peace. All of a sudden, look what happens in verse 13. He's joined by a multitude of the heavenly hosts, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth, peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, our word multitude is translated from the Greek word that gives us plethora. So if you're familiar with plethora, that's the Greek, that's the English word. It's actually in the Greek spelled that way. It's transliterated. It means fullness. And some think perhaps every angel in heaven filled the night sky from horizon to horizon. I think that's likely what happened. So can you imagine the shepherds all of a sudden seeing this angel who's just declared the good news to them, the good news of God that somebody has come to bring peace and put their favor on him. Can you imagine all of a sudden all of the, all of the angels in heaven emptying out heaven and coming down and filling the entire night sky with luminescent, glorious beings? And they're proclaiming peace to those who receive God's goodwill. And we call that grace. 
This is why Paul never once does it any different when he opens up his epistles. Grace and peace to you. Never ever does he flip that. It's never peace and grace. Grace is what brings peace. The goodwill of God through Jesus establishes peace. You know what peace is, right? It literally means to join. Peace is when you, Christian brother and sister, have been joined with the hand of the Father through Jesus, his Son. And now there's wholeness, and there's wellness, and there's favor, and there's joy, and there's relationship, and there's intimacy with God. But it's something that Rome could never create. Now watch this, you ready? It's 27 BC. 23, possibly years before this event. When was Jesus born? Well, I think probably likely 4 BC. So 27 BC, Caesar Augustus, you already met him, Gaius Octavius, declared the Pax Romana. That's Latin for the peace of Rome. Pax is peace, Romana, Rome. And it was a ceasefire. He had brought the entire Roman Empire from the brink of war to a ceasefire. And he established peace all over Rome. They called it the Pax Romana. But listen, it was a military enforced peace. There was no goodwill toward each other. It was an incredibly divided, prejudicial, racist kingdom. True peace begins between God and a person. And then it goes from Christian to Christian. And this is the evidence of having received Christ as Lord and Savior, the peace of God given to you, given freely to others. Listen, if you're right now embroiled in a relationship that is fractured, you need to do all you can to repair it. As far as it depends on you, be at peace with all people, even if you have to swallow formidable pride. That's what you do. That's evidence of God's peace that's been poured into your life. And if you're not capable or willing to do that, then you ought to bring suspect to whether God's peace is ever poured in there. The peace of God is life-changing. And quickly and finally, we're going to see that in the shepherd's response. The final point. God's adventures are life-changing and often, get this, career-sustaining. Life-changing and often career-sustaining. Look at verse 16. And they went with haste, found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. Earlier, verse 7, Mary gave birth to her firstborn son. Look what she did. Wrapped him in swaddling cloths. Maybe Joseph did. Maybe a midwife there attending to them. And laid him in a manger. But Luke doesn't mention this. But, the, but the, one of the first things that they do for a newborn baby back then was they take salt. And they rub the entire body vigorously with salt. If you've had a baby, you know there's lots of folds and creases in a newborn baby. And there's liquid in there. And so that salt would take and clean the skin. They often believed, they also believed that it hardened the skin so that infections, they didn't understand infections, but it was to keep things out that could get in and hurt the baby. And then the baby was swaddled to keep warm, protect the internal organs, and they believed to keep the limbs straight for proper growth. 
And sometimes they swaddled babies with a large square cloth. It had a long strip sewn into a corner. But more commonly, they used strips of cloth or one very long strip. Now listen, five or six yards long. Four to five inches wide. And they wrapped around each of the limbs of the baby and then the body of the baby itself. The Savior of the world was swaddled. That's an amazing thought. And then laid in a manger. This is not a beautiful bassinet. This is literally a trough for animals. This is why they believe he was in a stable, likely in a cave system, where food and water was placed. This is an animal a trough to feed them and to water them. And the shepherds find Mary, Joseph, and the baby, look at what it says, lying in that manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Now, this is remarkable. And I'm almost done. But this is so incredibly exciting. The gospel is good news about God's salvation for all people who will believe. And it was meant to be shared. Listen, the gospel is not meant to stay private. If you've not ever shared the good news, then you've not yet gotten on board the adventure that God has for you. And it doesn't matter how old you are. If you're a Christian at eight, you should be sharing the good news. And God will help you. He's gotten an adventure for you, even with your classmates and your friends. And your adventure centers on the good news. And the shepherds show you it's not really that difficult to tell people about it. They're not educated. They didn't go to seminary. They didn't have 10 weeks of how to share the gospel. They didn't go through evangelism explosion. They saw the Savior, and it captured their heart. It exploded out of their heart, and they went back, and they told everyone what they had seen. They made it known, and this was their Christmas adventure. These are the first missionaries. These are the first evangelists. They didn't decide to go to Rome they didn't go down into Egypt. They didn't go to the Arabian Desert. It was really close to them. They went right back to their flock doing the very same thing, sustainable career, where they would soon encounter other shepherds who needed to hear about the same good news. The gospel is life-changing, but often career-remaining is sustained. You don't need to go across the world to share the gospel. It is good news that has given you and I to be shared right where you are. So what do we learn from these shepherds? Well, first of all, we learn that God is in perfect control of the adventure that he has called you on. Listen, if you're questioning that, I get it. I have too. Come back to the throne and remember he's sovereign. He's in perfect control. And those adventures usually involve the most unlikely of people who often say, why me? And that adventure will center on the good news of the gospel. That's why we need to understand it. We need to be able to understand and know it. We need to be able to experience it. That Jesus Christ, that birthed baby, was our substitute. Because animal blood can't take away sin. It only covers it. Here comes the Son of God to take away the sins of all those who believe. And what he brings is peace. And it will rarely require you to change 
your career or your situation, for that is where the good news needs to be shared. Amen? Let's pray.